You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Well, good morning again. Uh, And once again, I'm thankful that we have this opportunity to meet together as the body of Christ, both in person and online. Hello again to those who are watching with us from home. Um, I'm also incredibly thankful for all that we've been learning about Jesus and from Jesus as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, especially because this is actually our primary calling as spirit-filled Christians, a calling which is passed down to us by Jesus himself through the apostles, a calling which says, go and teach people of all nations about all that I said and did. So Jesus calls us to do, to confess. He tells his disciples to do this, right? To confess what they had seen and heard from him. And I believe that this is just as important now as it was then, maybe even more so, especially in our Western society where fewer and fewer people, including believers, sadly, are actually reading their Bibles, In other words, a lot of people, again, even some who confess to be Christian, really don't know who Jesus is or what he taught or what he did for us or why he did it. Or they just have a small picture. They don't have the full picture of it. In fact, according to stats recently released over the past couple of years, a lot of people these days actually hold to flawed or generalized or narrow, or misunderstood, or even personalized or made-up ideas about who Jesus is, whether it's due to influence from Hollywood or other religions or popular atheist conjecture or, of course, course personal preference, you know, just made-up things. Um, You know, whether it's, you know, some hold to the buddy Jesus or the guru Jesus or the hippie Jesus or the teacher Jesus or the good example Jesus or the anarchist Jesus or the fabled Jesus or the prosperity gospel Jesus or the judgmental uh, fire and brimstone Jesus or the Jesus who somehow agrees with every single one of your opinions and beliefs and life choices. Wow. Right? We, we have all these different ideas, but th- this is a big deal. This is a big problem because our ideas about Jesus, what we think of Jesus and who he is, directly correlate and define our expectations of him. Right? That is how we expect him to act or not act in our lives and in the world. And if our expectations aren't realistic or based on who he truly is, we're going to find that... that we're going to start thinking that he's always failing us or letting us down. Like, oh, I expect Jesus to do this. He didn't do that. He's letting me down. But as Timothy Keller once wrote, our greatest frustrations are often rooted in misplaced expectations. Our greatest frustrations are often rooted in misplaced expectations. In other words, a lot of people these days have become frustrated with God or disillusioned with him or lost in doubt, not because God stopped being God but simply because they had a wrong or incomplete idea about who he is. And on that end, I I, I think most of us, you know, in in different different seasons or moments of our lives, I I think most of us have have kind of been in that position, 
right? And so therefore, I think what we can relate to the passage which we're going to read this morning, in which we might, we might be surprised to find that it's actually John the Baptist, the very same great prophet who prepared the way for the Messiah and even baptized him in the Jordan. Yes, it's this John the Baptist who seems to be struggling with this issue of having misplaced expectations about Jesus as well. We'll find that for him, Jesus isn't acting the way he expected the Messiah to act. And so this dichotomy between what he he thinks should be happening versus what actually is happening seems to be causing him to doubt if Jesus is actually the Messiah. So so we're going to attempt to figure out what's going on there. And of course, we're going to try to figure out what lessons we can learn from both John's questioning here and through Jesus' response to him and to those listening to the conversation. All right, Luke 7, 18 to 35, if you want to turn with me to Luke 7, 18 to 35. It's a little bit of a longer passage this morning. So if you think my sermon's long, it's the passage's fault, okay? Um, also, speaking of misplaced expectations, if you thought I was going to preach a short sermon, you're going to be frustrated. Luke 7, 18 to 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, all the things that Jesus was doing, right? And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour... Jesus healed many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on on many who were blind, he bestowed sight, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in kings' courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is... He of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he is a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It's the word of the Lord. Here comes the Lord of the Rings reference. I, I, remember, I remember the day, it's a must for pastors. I, I remember the day that I, I stepped out of the theater after watching The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, for the first time. As a fantasy nerd, I was blown away by the movie. The, the expansiveness, the, the acting, the score, the imagery, the all-around quality of, of the film. It, it was awesome. And, I, and I'm still talking about it. That's how awesome. I don't know when it came out, like 20 years ago. But then, but then I bumped into an old high school classmate and fellow nerd who'd just seen the movie as well. And so I'm all excited. I'm like, oh, what'd you think of it? And, and to my dismay, he started to tell me how disappointed he was in it. And I'm shocked. So I asked him why, and he told me it was because the movie had left out a couple of scenes or moments from the book. So let's get this straight. He, he wasn't judging the movie for what it was. He was judging it for not being what he wanted or expected it to be. That's not how we, we judge art. You don't go to the museum and you're like, mm, I don't like that painting of a tree because it's not an alligator. Right? That doesn't make any sense. It'd be like telling the Beatles that their song, Hey Jude, is the worst because you expected them to sing, Hey Carl. I don't know why you'd want them to sing, Hey Carl. So it doesn't make sense for two reasons. And, and in the same vein... In, in, in the passage today, we, we see John Baptist w- with a similar attitude here, right? He's wondering if Jesus is even the Messiah at all because the reports he's hearing about him don't line up with what he expects. The first thing he does about, upon hearing the reports about Jesus, healing people and eating with sinners and being called a prophet, is to get a couple of his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? First of all, ouch, right? If someone came up to, up to me after I finished preaching this sermon and asked me, hey, um, are you the preacher or should we wait for someone else? <laughs> that would suck. That would hurt my feelings. Obviously, that means the person who, who asked that question is implying that I don't fit their definition of what a preacher should be, right? Not only that, but, but by the way it's asked, it's almost like a rebuke, right? It's almost like a rebuke as if to say, you better start acting like the preacher I expect or I'm moving on to someone else. And so in, in a sense, this is almost like what John the Baptist is saying to Jesus through his disciples. Of course, it's good to ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. That's a good question. And the answer is yes. And salvation comes freely when you believe it. And, and Luke the author of the Gospel of Luke, makes sure we know that in this passage as well. But yet, the way John the Baptist instructs his disciples to ask Jesus this question is almost like he's saying, hey Jesus, if you don't start acting like the Messiah, I expect we're moving on to someone else. So that's, that's pretty intense. But isn't this how we often treat Jesus at times as well? Maybe we don't even know we're doing it. We say, hey, Jesus, you didn't, you didn't do what I wanted you to do, so I'm mad at you now. Or you didn't come through the way I expected you to, so I don't believe in you now. 
Those might be extreme examples, but, but we do that, don't we? But, but even so, it's, it's crazy to read about someone like John the Baptist doing this and, and casting doubt upon Jesus like this. So, so first of all, what's going on here? I mean, I mean John, he, he came as the prophesied forerunner in the spirit of Elijah to make a way for Jesus, a prophet sent by God to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah. He even baptized Jesus, Jesus in the Jordan, as I said earlier. He even encouraged some of his own disciples to ditch him and follow Jesus instead, saying he must increase and I must decrease. He even witnessed the spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove, which signified his righteous and divine sonship to the Father. So, of course, we have to ask, what happened to John here? How did someone like him, who, who proclaimed and witnessed so much, get to this place of doubting Jesus as the Messiah? Well, the honest answer here is that it doesn't say. The text doesn't tell us specifically. But based on the narrative of Luke so far and based on Jesus' response to the question, we can definitely find some plausible theories or come up with some safe assumptions about what might be going on here. But at the foundation, as I've been saying, it's likely due to the fact that he was holding on to a narrow or, or holding on to incomplete ideas about who the Messiah would be. And what I mean is it's highly possible that John, for whatever reason, wasn't seeing the full picture wasn't seeing the full picture. But you might be thinking, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. He can't have an incomplete or narrow or biased theology. Then, then we can't trust him. He, he, he can't have a narrow theology. And, and to that I say, he sure can. Prophets aren't God. Prophets aren't perfect. And so Yes, in the moments when God is speaking through that prophet, when God gives them a word to speak to his people, in that moment, yes, their word is divinely inspired. Which, which by the way, is what a prophet is. If you don't know, what, a lot of people have weird ideas about what prophets are as well. They're, they're not fortune tellers. They're not predictors of the future. They're someone who God chooses to speak his word through. And this could be speaking a word of reminder of what God's done in the past. It could be speaking a word of rebuke or encouragement to his people in that moment. And yes, it could be a promise of what's to come to encourage them to persevere and look forward. That's what a prophet is, God, someone God speaks through. But we have to recognize that Scripture also points out that some of these prophets have moments of trial and moments of imperfection and sin and doubt as well. Even Elijah, whom, whom John the Baptist is meant to, to reflect as, as Jesus' forerunner, he had moments of doubt and confusion and discouragement. And, and furthermore, the scriptures, especially the New Testament, also remind us repeatedly that none of the prophets ever knew the full truth or even grasped the full meaning of the words they were prophesying. It says they only got to see in part. And we're blessed today in that we get to see a, a fuller picture of God's plan because Jesus has already come and fulfilled most of the prophecies through his de life, death, and resurrection. Right? But the prophets of old didn't, didn't get to see it on this side of heaven or on that side of the cross. And so if John, the last prophet before Jesus, if, if he had a narrow or incomplete theology about the Messiah and coming kingdom of God, 
he didn't have the full picture, we can't blame him. It actually isn't surprising. And so we have to ask, what was John's theology? Well, let's back up a bit and, and read about what he prophesied to the crowds about the Messiah. Listen to what he says. Luke 3, 7 and 8, and verses 16 and 17. You can read all of Luke 3 later if you want to get the full idea, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses here just, just to give us a, some context here. Luke 3, 7 to 8 and 16 to 17. He says to the crowds, You children of snakes. Imagine if I came up here, that's the first thing I said to you. It's like, Good morning, you children of snakes. Right? He's intense. He's in it, like all the prophets, he's intense. You children of snakes, who warned you to escape from the angry judgment that is coming soon? Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And then later he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the weed into his barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Yikes, that's intense. How many people in here know what a winnowing fork is? Just, just one half, half hand. Uh, um, half hand? I don't know what that is. <laughs> His hand kind of came up. But uh, I, I, I kind of knew, but I had to look it up just to make sure. So don't, don't, be, don't be sad if you didn't know what it is. Don't be ashamed. Basically, it looks like a pitchfork. Do you have that picture up there? There you go. It looks like a pitchfork. So sometimes I had a long handle. Sometimes you just held it in your hand. Look like that. That's a winnowing fork. And it was used by farmers back then to scoop up harvested wheat into the air after it had been threshed so that the wind would blow away the husk from the grain. Do you, do you have a picture of that? Yeah. So they would, they would just, after it had been harvested, they'd, they'd pick it up, throw it in the air, and the, grain, the heavier grain would fall into the ground, and then the husk would blow away in the wind. That's how they, that's how, uh, they would separate the grain from the chaff, and the grain would be gathered and the chaff would be burned up in a fire as waste. So this is what John the Baptist is expecting the Messiah to do when he, come, when he shows up. That the Messiah would, A, be way more worthy and powerful than himself. So John's a prophet. He, thinks, he expects the Messiah to be way more worthy and more powerful. That, B, that he would bring an angry judgment of fire See that he would separate the wheat from the chaff. That is, when he comes, he'd separate the sinners from the righteous. And D, that he would baptize the righteous with spirit and fire. In other words, that he would usher in God's presence and purify them from all that is evil and sinful. So this is what he expects Jesus to do when he comes. And the truth is that, it, the truth is that he's not wrong. Jesus will do these things. The issue, though, as we've, as we've since learned, as, if, as we go through the rest of, of the Gospel of Luke, the time of judgment and, and that winnowing is meant for the day when Jesus comes again in glory. First, he had to defeat the power of sin and death at the cross and in his resurrection so that we could be made righteous. Then he had to be given authority to judge the living and the dead at the right hand of God. 
All that had to happen first before he could come in judgment and establish his kingdom. And so, so it seems, again, that the source of John's disappointment and doubt here is, is, that, is that he seems to have missed the first part of the plan. It's like he expected the Messiah to immediately bring judgment and establish his kingdom in full. Like there would be this clean break between the old and the new age. Uh, do you have that picture? Two-part Jewish eschatology. So you see there's... This age, sin and darkness, kingdoms of the world, Messiah comes, boom, age to come. This is actually a theological position which many Israelites at the time hoped in. And we see that in, in converse, as Jesus' has conversation with, with many of them, right? Um, they held to that, especially because they wanted to be freed from the oppression of the empire of Rome. So they wanted the Messiah to come, boom, set them free, right? But, again, as we progress through Luke, we'll find that this isn't how God planned to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, Jesus will teach us that the new age, the new kingdom, his kingdom, that it will come like a seed, being planted in the ground, which slowly grows into a large tree. Or that the new kingdom will come like yeast, which slowly works its way through the dough. Or that the kingdom of God will be like wheat, which grows alongside the weeds. Weeds which the farmer instructs not to be pulled out until the time of the harvest, so that none of the wheat gets pulled out with it by accident. In other words, the righteous will be established alongside sinners until the time of the harvest, until Jesus comes again. In other words, the coming of the new age, the revealing of the fullness of the kingdom of God, will look more like this picture as a slow build. Eschatology, by the way, is kind of as a study of the end times, if you want to know what that word means. Now, that, that's obviously not a completely accurate diagram, but it gives us a sense where we see there's this age of sin and kingdoms of the world, right? Messiah comes here, and then the ages coexist until when Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom and do away with evil and sin for good. But there's that time where the, it coexists. And this is the time, which I should mention, this is the time which we're currently living in. It's what theologians call the now and not yet, right? We, we know Jesus has won, that his kingdom is established, but we're still waiting for it to be revealed in full. But for John, then, so having this mindset or this expectation that Jesus is going to come and make that clean break, you can imagine his disappointment then when that doesn't happen, right? It comes as no surprise that he'd be... He'd be cast into doubt and confusion when, when he hears reports that Jesus isn't throwing sinners into the fire, but that he's actually dining with them and forgiving them. And then that he isn't chasing Romans out of town and establishing God's kingdom, but that he helped a Roman centurion and even praised his faith. 
Or that when he hears that Jesus is healing people and, and teaching them love and mercy rather than angrily sifting the chaff from the wheat, or when he hears that Jesus is being called a prophet by everyone when he thought Jesus was supposed to be more powerful than him. And Jesus is more powerful than him, but at that moment, people were calling him a prophet. So again, it comes as no surprise that John, upon hearing these reports, would be like, wait a minute. What? That's not right. That's, that's, that's not the plan. That's not the way it's supposed to go down. Where's the judgment? Where's the sifting? And he kind of reminds me of Jonah here, right? Jonah, who prophesied the judgment of Nineveh, and then he sat back to watch the carnage, only to be dismayed by the fact that God had mercy on them because they repented. Again, the issue, it seems, is that John's missing out on all the things the Messiah was meant to do first. It also probably doesn't help that John's currently in jail at this time for speaking out against King Herod's sham of a marriage. And so as a captive, you know, we were singing that this morning, Jesus sets the captives free. So he's thinking that, he might be thinking that literally. He's waiting for Jesus to come and set him free to establish his kingdom. On that end, we all know that it's easy to become frustrated or doubtful of God's faithfulness or his plan or his love for us when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, right? Especially if we think God's supposed to protect us from them. Frustrations come from misplaced expectations, and John's obviously dealing with a lot of things that don't seem to be lining up with his expectations. But I love Jesus' response to John. In a roundabout way, as, as, we'll, as I'll explain, he encourages John to see him for, true, for who he truly is. To see Jesus for who he truly is. So, back into the narrative. After John's disciples ask Jesus if he's the one or if they should look for someone else, Jesus doesn't answer them with a yes or no, right? In Jesus' fashion, he goes, he goes deeper, right? So instead, he, tur- he turns to the crowd, and he starts to heal the sick, and he starts to cast out spirits, and he starts giving sight to the blind. And then when he's finished doing that, then he turns to John's disciples, and he says to them, go, report to John what you have seen and heard. Those who are blind and are able, are able to see, those who were crippled now walk, people with skin diseases are cleansed, those who were deaf now hear, those who were dead are raised up, and good news is preached to the poor. There's that calling again, right? Report what you have seen and heard. And again, Jesus is basically saying to them, go get John to actually look at the evidence of who I am. And here we find that the amazing thing about about Jesus in in our seasons of, of doubt is that he addresses those doubts with the evidence of who he is. In other words, we can come to him and we can have our questions answered. And and this is what John did correctly here. He addressed his doubts about Jesus by going straight to the source, by going to Jesus to ask him. This is a lesson for us as well. 
our frustrations or, or, or our questions or our doubts that we have sometimes, they don't always mean we're wrong or, or in unbelief or that we're lacking in faith, right? As Oswald Chambers writes, it could just mean we're thinking. And guess what? Jesus has grace and he has patience for our questions. Jesus even expects us to use our brains and our intellect. But at the same time, he also reminds us to take our doubts and questions to the right place. If we have doubts and questions about him, we need to go to him and ask him. As the psalm says, in his light we see light. Or just as Andrea prayed earlier during worship, right? He's the truth, and, 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 in, and in his truth is where we find that clarity and that understanding. We need to go to him if we have questions or doubts about him. Not to YouTube, especially not to YouTube. Oh, boy. I remember uh, back in the day when I was in a band, when I was, when I was super cool. <laughs> We got asked to play at, at a conference, uh, but the person writing our band biography for the promotional material, he decided to ask our drummer about me. And he asked our drummer who my favorite band was so he could write it in the bio. And our drummer told him that my favorite band was Jars of Clay which was far from the truth. And so when I read the published bio, you know, you get to the conference, you're like, oh, there's a bio about me. What? I don't even own a Jars of Clay album. You know, as, as a grunge rocker back then, I was so embarrassed. I was so upset by this fake news that was written about me. I'm tweeting about it. No, there was no Twitter back then. But, you know, I... The point here is that the person writing the bio about me should have come to me, or even our bass player, not the drummer. No offense, Brad and Tim. You guys are good guys. I'm just kidding. But definitely, definitely not that drummer. Um, he should have come to me, to the source. And, and in the same vein, if, if we have doubts or questions about who Jesus is, go to the source. Go to him. And we could do that through prayer, right? Through seeing the evidence of his works in creation, through fellowship with other believers, like, like what we're doing right now. But primarily, we do this through studying scripture and what it says about him. And you know what? This is exactly what Jesus gets John to do. At first glance, if you're reading through it, it might seem like Jesus is showing John and John's disciples that he's the Messiah simply by the fact that he can do miracles. And this is a huge part of it, sure. The miracles, we've talked about miracles and healings already in this, in this series, and we'll talk about them again. The miracles and healings provide tangible evidence of his authority over the physical and over the spiritual. They show that Jesus has come in power and that his kingdom is not political, but spiritual, right? But yet, there's more to it here. These miracles are also telling us that he's the fulfillment of Scripture, that he's the fulfillment of God's promise. And Jesus is actually quoting Scripture here. 
That paragraph that he says, he's quoting scripture. He's quoting a prophecy from Isaiah, which says what the Messiah will come and do. In other words, in a roundabout way, he's encouraging John to set aside his preconceived ideas and to open up the scriptures again. Take another look. Remember what the word says. Look closely at what it says about the Messiah and what he came to do. And in doing so, then he'll see and know that Jesus fits the description perfectly. As Jesus said at another time, John 5.39, the scriptures, this is what Jesus is saying, the scriptures point to me. The scriptures point to him. On that end, there are over 350, over, over 350 prophecies. There's, you know, people argue about which about how, how many there exactly are, depending on your interpretation. But there are over 350 prophecies and even more inferences about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Of course, the chances of one person fulfilling them all is impossible. And yet, Jesus did. And when he comes again, we'll see it all fulfilled in full. So ultimately, when we look at the evidence through Scripture and measure it up against all Jesus said and did, we can see and know with certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. There is no doubt. And so while Jesus might not be the Messiah John expected, if he digs into the Word, he'll see that he is the Messiah which God promised. And again, this is a lesson for us. You know, especially in the seasons where we're feeling disillusioned or, or frustrated or in doubt about Jesus and about God. He's not doing what we think he should be doing. There's a high possibility in those moments that, that, that it's actually because we're holding on to some incorrect ideas or incomplete ideas or misplaced expectations about him. And that's a sign and a reminder that we should open up the word and allow the word to change us and change our perspectives and give us clarity about who he truly is. And this is also why Jesus says, blessed is the one who isn't offended of me. Blessed are the ones who look at Jesus and receive him, not for who we or society thinks he should be, but for who he truly is. Because when we see and receive him for who he truly is, we won't be able to help ourselves from falling at his feet in repentance and with faith and with thanksgiving and with worship. When we see him for who he truly is, we'll find that he's even better than we expected. And we won't become frustrated or let down with him because we'll be able to see that he's faithful, that he never changes, and he never wavers from who he is. In a couple passages from now, Jesus will ask Peter, one of his disciples, this very question. Who do you say that I am? That's such an integral question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter cannot help but look upon him and respond that he's the Messiah. 
So who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Jesus then goes on to emphasize this very lesson for the crowds that are gathered around, while also simultaneously affirming John the Baptist for who he is as well. And, and, and this is important, because I'm sure it would have been tempting for people to start to doubt John as, as, a, as a prophet, since he's having these kinds of doubts himself. But Jesus will have none of that, right? And so... As, as John's disciples are leaving, he, he proclaims to the crowd that John wasn't one to waver in his commitment to God like a reed blowing in the wind. He wasn't one to seek glory or popularity over God like those in luxury or fancy clothes in king's castles, right? No, he was a prophet through and through, and more than a prophet, in fact. He's one who was the fulfillment of prophecy himself as the one who came to prepare the way for the Lord. He's telling them the evidence that John was a prophet was just as evident in the scriptures as the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, that is for those who are willing to truly see it and believe it. And then Jesus proclaims from verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. No one is greater than John. Even among all the prophets, no one is greater than him. But yet, in the coming kingdom, which Jesus is establishing and has established, he says, even the least be greatest. Theologian Warren Wiersbe writes, how is the least person in the kingdom of God greater than John? In position, not in character or ministry, in position. John was the herald of the king announcing the kingdom, but believers today are children of the kingdom and friends of the king. John's ministry was a turning point in both the nation's history and in God's plan of redemption. Right, so while we didn't see that cl clean break between the old and the new age, John, his message, his preparing the way, and then Jesus' coming was that shift, that turning point. And, and, and so this is a promise, right? What Jesus says here, that the least will become greatest, this is a promise and declaration for all those who believe in Jesus, that, that will sit with him in glory when he comes again. But again, here's the problem. We first have to be willing to see Jesus and receive him for who he truly is. And as he points out, there are many people like the Pharisees and the scribes who simply refuse to look. They refused to believe John and refused his baptism, and now they refuse to see Jesus. They choose instead to write him off, right? Simply because they just don't want to believe it or because they're offended by him. 
They're offended by him, mostly because if they see Jesus for who he is, what does that mean? Then they'll have to see themselves for who they truly are. That they're sinners in need of a savior. That they're not as righteous as they think they are. So Jesus explains this further by saying that many people found a way to write off John and his message by accusing him of being crazy and possessed since he didn't eat or drink. And yet in the same breath, these same people write off Jesus and his message by saying he's a glutton and a friend of sinners because he does eat and drink. So what is it? You can eat or drink or you can't eat or drink. What's going on there? And if I can be blunt, this is the perfect definition of the so-called logic of our generation and our society when it comes to our intellect or about God or our unbelief about God, right? It's illogical. It's, it's often contradictory. But here's the point. When people don't want to see someone or something for what it is, or when they don't want to admit who they really are or they don't want to admit that they're wrong about something. They'll come up with, with anything, or they'll say anything to write off the messenger and to justify themselves and, and their own intellect or whatever. We see this happen all the time. As Jesus says, they're a childish generation. He says, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. So we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. No matter what they do, they won't budge. What is it? What do you want? It's like when you're trying to convince someone of something, but no matter what you say, or, or what tone you say it in, or how you say it, or how you explain it, they just refuse to listen, right? because they just rather believe in their own quote-unquote truth. And th this is what Jesus is saying to them and, and our generation as well. You know, it, it seems like sometimes it just doesn't matter what evidence he or John presents to them. It doesn't matter what method or, 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 or way that they bring it that these types of people will always harden their hearts and stubbornly close their eyes and stick their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you, Right? So childish. We need to make sure that isn't us. We need to make sure that when we come before the Lord, we come with humility, that we come with openness, that we come ready to receive and to learn. That we're not just stubbornly sticking to our ideas. As Wearsby again writes, they wanted neither the funeral nor the wedding because nothing pleases them. People who want to avoid the truth about themselves can always find something in the preacher to criticize. Like, if you don't like what I'm saying right now, you could be like, oh, man, that guy's bald. You can't trust him. He doesn't have any hair. See, you're not even, like, you're not even judging me for what message I'm saying. You're, you're just judging me for me, right? Just making something up. That's what, that's what they did to Jesus and John. And, and he goes on to say, this is one way they justify themselves. But God's wisdom is not frustrated by the arguments of the quote-unquote wise and prudent, people that think they're smart, 
It is demonstrated in the changed lives of those who believe. So this is what Jesus means when he says wisdom is justified or proved right by her descendants. You can tell a wise decision by its result, by its fruit, right? By what it produces in those who follow after wisdom. There's your evidence. As Daryl L. Bach writes, and also sums up, he also sums up the passage for us this morning in this quote. It's a little bit long, but it's good. I didn't want to cut anything out of it. He says this, he says, God often acts in surprising ways. His unusual path is often lined by people's doubt and rejection. Here Jesus points to his ministry as evidence for the nature of the times. In addition, he warns that, that others are not interested in seeing God work, but simply want to control how God does things. But God comes to us in surprising ways on his own terms. The call is not to be offended by the one he sends or by how he brings his plan to pass. Even in the midst of doubt, we are called to see what God has done and trust that his way is the path of wisdom. Wisdom's children see his ways and walk in them. In wisdom's path is the blessing of sharing in God's presence beyond even what the best of God's prophets enjoyed. Even if many peers never acknowledge God's work, those who respond to Jesus are highly privileged. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning. Come to him as you are. Come to him with your doubts. Come before the word of God with your questions. But in the same vein, be humbly willing to set aside your preconceived notions and misplaced expectations about him. Be willing to admit that you have some. Because we all do. So that you can follow the evidence. Let the Holy Spirit guide you into the truth so that you can see him for who he truly is. In the same vein, as believers, let's be committed to always examining the promises of God through the prophets. Let's continue to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of who he is according to the scriptures. And in doing so, we'll see what he's done. We'll see his faithfulness. We'll be able to see his faithfulness in our lives. And we'll continually find the answer to the question, is he the one? And the answer will be yes, he is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is who we need. And he never changes. And that all those who believe in him by faith and who are not ashamed of who he truly is, even the least of these will be seen as the greatest in the kingdom of God. That's a promise for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of promise, a God who is faithful. And I thank you that that that. Jesus, when he came, he was exactly what you promised 
that he was exactly what we needed as our Savior. And Lord, I pray that in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would open our eyes each and every day. Open our eyes wider. Open our hearts even more each and every day, Lord God, that that we would be able to grasp and see and know and grow in the knowledge of who he is. That it would increase our faith in him. That it would increase our humility before him and our desire to follow after him. so that he can do his work within us, Lord. That we would be the the evidence of of the reality of who he is, Lord. By the fruit that we bear, by the work you do within us, Lord God. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that, that is in a place or in a season of doubt or in a season of questioning, Lord, Lord, I pray that, first of all, that, that, that you would remind them that they don't need to feel bad or ashamed that they're in that place, Lord God. But I also pray that you would remind them to come to you. Lord, that if they have questions about you, that they, should, they, that they need to come to the source. Because in you is the truth, Lord. And we thank you for that, that in your light is where we see light. That in your light, the way is lit up. So Jesus, I just want to encourage each and every person here this morning that, that it, to know that they can come to you. Lord, you've demonstrated that, that you have grace and patience for our questions and that you answer them with the evidence of who you are, Lord. I thank you for the confidence that you give us in you, that we can trust you, that we can place our lives in your hands with assurance are faithful, that you never waver. Lord, we give you all the glory. 